This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, and it is time. we got a lot of ground we need to cover today. Got a couple of great interviews. We'll touch base with our old friend Alex Newman, and I will uh, ask him the question that's been on my mind for a long time, which is basically, uh, are Americans wakening up to the education problem, but are they missing the right fight? So we'll talk to Alex Newman, the expert on education and education systems, and a great guy, too. And we'll also talk with uh, Dr. Brett M. Decker, our regular um, uh, regular uh, guest on the show. He was a journalist. We'll ask him about some of the reporting that we've seen uh, and a lot more. But first, we have to get to the story that you should care about, you should care about, and you're not being told about. Except maybe a little bit. We'll see. We'll see if the story comes out. Earlier on Thursday, the census released its numbers for the um, 2020 census. And that is a big deal because... It for a lot of reasons, <clears throat> excuse me, one, many reasons actually. It have to do with uh, how uh, how uh, things are distributed and understanding of uh, how to handle um, emergencies, all kinds of things. When you know where people live, it, it matters. It's helpful. Uh, but the number one thing that you know about is then the um, census is used to apportion uh, districts for the U.S. Congress and for local election, uh, state level, usually the state legislature for, uh, uses these. So it's a big deal. It's finally out. And here's what I want to talk about nobody's talking about this um if you look at the map and they released a map uh and you can get a copy i'll put it up on social media you look at the map the percent change in county population 2010 to 2020 and this map the uh the area that shows that losing ground losing population is a kind of i don't know brown color tannish brown and the area that's gaining 20 percent or more uh and even 10 percent or more both of those are are green uh, dark green is 20 percent or more and 10 percent to 20 percent more of uh, increase in population is a lighter green here's what you notice when you look at the map we're hollowing out america we're driving our population away from not just the heartland, anywhere except the coasts or the city. A few cities show some increase, but you look at this map and you'll see a hollowing out of America from 2010 to, 20, 2010 to 2020. In fact, uh, the, the way it was described by uh, Nate Cohn, you know, one of these uh, statistician types who uh, writes over, I think, at the New York Times is where he is. He, he's the he's the successor to Nate Silver uh, at that effort there um, the, at the New York Times. They call it the upshot now at the New York Times. Pretty interesting because he's kind of a statistician econom- e- economist. And even though he leans left, I like to look at what he says. He's a smart guy. And here's what he writes. Vast swaths of rural America and an outright majority of all counties lose population think about that so his point the first part is the rural swaths i mean the whole it's a hollowing out of america but also a majority of all counties lost population a white uh, non-hispanic population fell a point or so from 58 or so to 57 percent excuse me from 59 or so to 58 percent uh and uh, hispanic share went up a couple points to 18 percent you probably don't know it i bet you don't know that percentage of the census uh, by census, the percentage of population of African Americans is about twelve percent. That you hear about it as if it's a number that's you know either competitive or bigger than Hispanic. Hispanic's much bigger. But here's why this is important: watching the politicians react and seeing the Democrats react, complaining 
Julian Castro, the uh, far left uh, Texas politician. I think he was the mayor of San Antonio and may have served in the cabinet of Obama. Um, Castro immediately complained and said that Trump tried unsuccessfully to add the citizenship question to the census. And that was unfair because illegals should be counted. Now, think about how crazy it is. It's almost as crazy as allowing non-citizens to vote in our elections, which some, which some, some local jurisdictions are doing that. Over in California, I think in Berkeley or somewhere, they're allowing non-citizens to vote in their school board elections. I think in Maryland, they have some small towns where they allow non-citizens to vote. It's insane. I mean, I, I'm not for returning to a, uh, a system where only property owners uh, can vote, which was way back in the olden days. That's not a good system. But somewhere between anybody who's passing through living for a short time and gets to vote? Come on. Doesn't make any sense. But Julian Castro jumped in immediately and he said, oh my gosh, we can't trust these uh, results because Trump said we should count citizenship and illegals should be counted. Think about this. He wants, and they, I'm sure that a lot of them were counted, illegals counted. For the purposes of what? Well, for one thing, if you have a million illegals in California and you count them, you're going to get more representation in the u.s house because you apportion them by population in other words illegals are going to skew the representation of an area and what are they going to skew it towards almost always to the urban centers second if you count illegals you're counting people a lot of times money is sent and i don't support this but this is the reality now money is sent from the federal government and they have to have a way to say okay we're going to give um some money for the homeless how many people are in x area we're going to give a percentage you know we're going to we know that of a of a percentage in a certain area x percent is going to be uh homeless therefore you get this much money depending on how much so, so you inflate your numbers you get more money you get more access to power. So what is the census? Be, the complaint about the census is that it's not including non-citizens. It's, in other words, the left wants to include non-citizens to skew the power of politics, the power of representation, and to get the money, more money. And how is it that we're not in, a, in a, just a battle over this? You know, I, I was reading, I, I've been paying attention to some things that were happening in Europe, and it always uh, strikes me when you see something that's going on in a place where you assume, you know, America is like the rest of the world on some things. And so there is a, um, there is a, uh, uh, a, a, a story about the Italian Olympic team, and the Italian Olympic team did better than ever, and a bunch of the Olympic team is made up of people that are Italian citizens, but were not born in Italy. And they go into this and they say, and this is the Politico says, as with most European countries, Italy awards citizens, citizenship based on jus sanguinus, the principle that citizenship is determined by the parents, uh, the person's parents. So who your parents are defines whether you're a citizen. Jus soli, the principle that the country of citizenship is determined by the person's country of birth, is regardless citizenship, is only applied in Canada and America. In other words, birthright citizenship, this idea that if you sneak into America and have a baby, the baby gets to be a citizen here because that's where it was born, that's crazy for the rest of the world, even the liberal places. And Italy is stuck to it. They say, we're not changing that. We don't care where you were born. I mean, we don't care who you're, uh, where you were born. We care who your parents are. If your parents were uh, African nationals of some nation... You don't get to be a citizen in Italy, and the way Italy does is they make you wait until you're 18, then you apply for citizenship. But it brings me back to this incredible point. We're losing this nation 
We are losing this nation because, well, we are at risk. Let me say that. We are at risk of losing our nation because we are refusing to adjust to the modern reality. There was no modern reality of a million people crossing over our border in 1800, in 1900. You had to come by ship. You had to be seen. It was too hard. And we're not adjusting to the reality. And we're watching our country be transformed. And the census is showing that transformation. Is it all bad? Of course not. Having some new people, of course it's not bad. The problem is, at the same time that we're not controlling who comes, we're actually controlling what our people learn. And they are learning to hate their country, to hate their nation, to hate themselves. It's not a good recipe. You know, in 1900, when you came to America, from 1900 till what, 1950, you came to America, you came to a place that was like, it was, it, was, it was teeming with action and excitement and innovation and possibilities, and you wanted to be American. You wanted to, to buy into that system. You were happy to assimilate, learn the language, become a part of America. Now, being coming a part of America means becoming part of something you should hate. A racist. 1619 Project, all this kind of stuff. It's an incredible challenge right now. And the census tells a story, tells the truth about what's happening, and you're not hearing about it except to hear Julian Castro complain. You'll be hearing more about it as they draw these districts. So it's big news today, and we'll see more about that. All right, I'm going to fill you in later on. I got a story from the center of America, from that rural heartland that's being gutted. And, oh, let me, let me finish this. I'm sorry, I didn't get to finish this. The census is revealing because the hollowing out of America from 2010 to 2020 was done by our corporate elites and our elites in Washington and their policies on trade and their policies on immigration. That was them. The globalists did that. And it, maybe it can't be reversed. Maybe it can. But maybe it can't be reversed. But it shouldn't be missed that they did that. The census map that came out today is a map of disgrace for all the politicos in charge of this country from the 19 say early 90s the clinton years on through to 2016 and trump tried to reverse parts of it it's very tough to do but that map is an indictment of the leadership of this country who thinks when they fly into the hamptons or fly up to martha's vineyard or all over that everything's going fine. It looks good. You know, we got the market managed, all that. And the hollowing out of America, it's, a, it's disastrous for human flourishing, for human goodness, for the American dream. All right, we got to take a break. We'll come back. We've got some great interviews. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. We will be back in just a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. It's time to catch up with our old friend, Dr. Brett M. Decker. Dr. Decker is a New York Times bestselling author. He's uh, written numerous books on uh, topics from American politics to uh, politics in the Far East and business. And in between, he was a columnist for years, uh, still writes periodically in the USA Today, and was a journalist for, of course, we're at Wall Street Journal in their Asian Bureau and also for the Washington Times in Washington, D.C. Welcome back, Dr. Decker, now a professor at Defiance College. Uh, thanks for taking the time. How are you? Good. You know, just getting ready for a new school year to start. So, uh, is everybody? Is, is, is everybody? Must be. There is a, still the COVID thing. Is is your campus back full full on? Everybody's coming back in person. 
Uh, yeah, everything everything is sort of planned to be back to normal, but then you know who knows with the the Delta variant what that's going to force. But right now we're in person and uh, supposedly going to be masked indoors and social distance like last year, but um, no plans to go online at this point. Hmm. Uh, all right, Dr. Decker, I, one of the things I saw, I sent it to you earlier in the week, I did talk about it on the show, um, was um, uh, the uh, earlier in the week, Politico had a piece, which I sent to you, or maybe you sent it to me first, but the idea that was an open, was one of these pieces where the reporter flies to Wyoming and discovers that the rednecks in Wyoming uh, weren't getting vaccinated until, I don't know, mom did, which is the term he uses for his wife. And I sent it to you and you said something like, it just doesn't sound right. It sounds like somebody made it up, I guess. And the whole article I went on to say, didn't cover any of the other places. Vaccination percentages are low in mm, African-American communities, you know, lots of places. What's how, how do you how do you as a journalist read a story like that? Well, you know, there there are a few things going on here. One is this disparagement that you're you're seeing at sort of the institutional or establishment level of of like regular Americans, blue collar Americans, sort of working man, the sort of white American that that everybody sort of that that all these liberal institutions hate now, including the federal government. In this rush to diversify everything, you know, so so this this kind of Christian working conservative, maybe even not that political, except for they're tired of the way things going. Everybody has to uh, portray these people as like is like buffoons, right? So mm-hmm. you have a quote beginning that article where it's like, you know, I I think I have blue eyes, so I'm not going to get it. I, you know what? I'm about as steeped in conservative groups as you can be and have been for decades. I've never heard anyone say, oh, I'm blonde or red haired or blue eyed and I'm not going to get COVID. I have never heard that before, but it's in this stupid political piece. The other thing is, is, is this trend that as the media has gotten more and more for liberal advocacy and less about reporting any kind of objective news, Hand in hand, it's not a coincidence. Hand in hand, at the same time, there's been this growing acceptance of every piece relies on five anonymous sources. Well, right. it used to be using an anonymous source was very, very rare because what stops a reporter from just making stuff up, right? So, when I worked in the Wall Street Journal, and this is in conflict zone, so if you had if you named a source, well, people got killed for this stuff, right? The Philippines, you get killed. Somebody, you get probably pay somebody $25 and knock somebody off, right? So, right. And, and every year, candidates, what candidates get killed is a big part of an election outcome, sort of in, at the local <laughs> level. So even there, if I wanted to use, in these very dangerous conflict zone areas, if I wanted to use an anonymous source, I had to tell my editor who it was and get approved to use it. So the Wall Street Journal knew there really was someone there. And then if anyone challenged it, Right. The, the paper could go to the source to get it verified. Now it's just so loosey goosey. You can just, you know, oh, I met somebody at the donut shop and he said, you know, right. we should just suspend elections forever or whatever. <laughs> right, you know, exactly. people aren't, people don't talk that way. You know, right, so right. This loose standard in, in journalism of using anonymous sources. And the other thing is, the left when they portray us, it's always too cute by you know, by, by a couple phrases. You know, right, right, so right. what what how they think our people talk is different than they really do talk. So, you know, it makes the radar, the antenna go up for, yeah. for baloney. The baloney meter goes up if it's 
a little a, a little too stereotypical. Yeah, no, we're talking again with Dr. Brett M. Decker. I, I agree with you. And I, I think the, um, it, you know, somehow journalism is sliding faster than anybody ever expected into sort of almost like um, unintentional satire. It's just like, you know, it's a, you look at it and kind of laugh and say, and on the other hand, it, it, it must work, right? If you want to get clicks to Politico's story, you want to write for the group that wants to hear that, right? So you want to reinforce, you're not trying to portray something that everybody reads. You know, in the old days, I don't, I'm being a bit, bit uh, you know, kind of Pollyannish, I suppose, but let's say the St. Louis Post-Dispatch in the 1980s, that was going to get landed on my front step as well as my neighbor who was a liberal. We both were going to read the the. New news and we were going to so we had to all be sort of fed what it was and therefore tell me something somewhat true now it's feed the people where they are who's coming to get you uh now i want to slide over to another a section uh doctor we're talking dr brett m decker i i forgot to mention that he served in the in the uh, bush administration at uh, some high levels too um i wanted to ask your thoughts on this in 19 in 2010 uh, i think it, or 2009 i guess when the obama stimulus passed it was um, $787 billion. I think three senators voted for it and no Republicans, Senator, three senators, Republican senators, and zero Demo- uh, Republican House members. I think if a memory serves, it was close to that, if not that. Um, now, the, the $1.2 billion infrastructure, which is just another bailout, it's a transfer of wealth, uh, 19 or 17 or 19 Republican senators voted for it. You know, the, the first Obama stimulus, people forget that was sort of the trigger for the Tea Party. It became what everybody associated Obamacare also. But that was later on in the almost the next year, I think. And my, my question here is you can't have a Tea Party if almost half of your Republicans go for a spending uh, a boondoggle. Right. I mean, you, you, you're, you're muddying the waters. You're, you're, you're not able to make the, the clarity of the argument, I think. You know, I, I, you're exactly right. And I, I think. There are a couple things I think of in this one. Remember when Clinton said the era of big government is now over? Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, and part of that was even liberals knew that big government was not a good selling point. Well, you know, our next book should probably be the era of small government is now over. Yeah, and exactly. These people and a lot of the people that vote for this have relatively conservative voting records. Right. 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 But right. the idea is the idea is. Everybody wants their part of the pie now. My first boss in D.C., the late great columnist and CNN commentator Robert Novak, had this saying that most Americans are actually against big government, but they're for, but they're for their own little piece of small government. So people don't want like you know people might be against like sort of welfare or, or but they they want their social security or they want their little cut right so. People, people are for lots and lots and lots of little government, but it adds up over time. I think that's kind of the way to look at it. And, and there really is no movement. Uh, there's no serious movement to, like, make government smaller, right? I mean, the Republican Party, um, they do their best to contain it when they have the ability to, sort of, except if we have all three – if we have the presidency in both houses of Congress, our spending is as bad as the last. <laughs> exactly. Right? No, it's a, exa- the, the only question at this point is this, is there anything, 
any, I, I hate to say it, but any catastrophe that would make any movement be the opposite. In other words, let's have a problem and say, okay, we got to stop taxing everybody for a year. Everybody keep your money. We're shutting down Washington. Every time there's a crisis, either party, we just ratchet it up and, and print more money and more power goes to Washington. And it's a, you know, the trend line, I'm sure this is what FDR intended and Lyndon Johnson intended. They say, yeah, we'll get a hiccup every now and then we'll get, you know, Reagan a little bit and a little bit of Trump. But in general, the era of big government, they'll say that, as you point out, they'll say it over and over because it doesn't sell to be for big government. But there's no comparison. There's no comparison of the Leviathan of of the federal government now with anything in human history. You, you know, what's really hurt our side, I think, the conservative side of things is libertarians getting more and more into social issues like drug legalization, LGBT rights and stuff. Cato, when Cato had this sweet spot in the 80s and 90s, when Ed, Ed Crane, kind of the president and founder of Cato, was really influential, he stayed away from, from social issues and was really, really focused on finance and budgetary issues. Part of that is Ed Crane was a Catholic, so he was like pro-life and libertarian. Mm-hmm. So now Cato and libertarians are so focused on social issues that this important area of finance and budgets and, and, and fighting deficits and debt is, is kind of secondary. And th- they were an important part of that, like 1994 t- Republican takeover, and, and, because it was a libertarian right was ascendant instead of the libertarian left. And I think I, I'm not a libertarian, but I think on financial issues, they have a lot of oomph and make some points that are very useful for us. And yeah. I think having them kind of veer off um, has heard our side and our argument quite a bit. Yep, I think you're right. All right, well, that's got to leave it there, Dr. Decker, Dr. Brett M. Decker. I appreciate it very much, as always, and we'll talk again next week. We've got to take a break, everybody. Be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We're visiting with our old friend Alex Newman right now. And I have a really pointed question for Alex. I've been thinking about him for a few weeks. And uh, Alex Newman, of course, is an author. Uh, he is also a, a journalist, an investigative journalist. Uh, he's written books. He's also uh, written, uh, uh, writes frequently in the American and other places. And I'll put all this up on social media. But Alex, before I get to more of your credentials, because I've been chomping at the bit on this, you followed the Common Core fight very closely. And it was it was like like hot in 2014, 15, 16. And then Trump won. The federal Department of Education did some good things, not enough. And now we got the CRT fight. My question for you, Alex, is you've seen you've 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 watched them looking at your book on my shelf. You've seen the history of, of the education fights. I'm worried that we're not realizing that sometimes we fight over something that is important, common core, but we can't really win if we don't understand what's behind it. In other words, common core was the whole system of teaching, not just what they would name common core towards the end. And CRT is the whole system of what they're seeing. Are you worried about that? Am I misreading it? What are your thoughts? Uh, I think you're exactly right, Ed. It's a major problem that uh, we are fighting on single issues here. Common core is a perfect example. Even if we could get common core out of the government school system, it wouldn't make the government school system acceptable. It wouldn't make it a safe place to send your children. And I've been saying the same thing about critical race theory. Even if we could wave a magic wand and get it out of the public school system, which we can't, right? This has now been embedded into the worldview of a huge number of our teachers. This has been systemic. It's been uh, pounded into their heads for four years at state universities while they were getting a so-called education degree. You can't just pass a law and ban CRT in the schools. But even if you could, 
it still wouldn't make the public schools acceptable. It still wouldn't be a safe place for parents to send their children for so-called education. So we've got to look at, at the broader overarching problem, and that is the system itself. You know, systemic racism in America today is an absolute myth. It's, in fact, it's a lie, a pernicious lie designed to destroy and divide our country. But there are systemic problems, and one of those is the government school system. Yeah, uh, we're talking with Alex Newman again. I mentioned Alex is the uh, he's an award winning international journalist. Uh, he is also the CEO of Liberty Sentinel Media. And you go to Liberty dot org. You'll see a lot more there. He's written all over. He pu- publishes all over the place, uh, particularly. I'm proud that he's over at the Epic Times uh, right now. He writes over there and contributes. But also, um, I love that. I love the Epic Times and what they're doing. Also, New American Magazine. OK, Alex, um, I hear you. But now tell me this. I mean, I've watched you speak and you're so persuasive, so uh, loaded down with all the details. When you go out to good people, good people, I mean, I, I mean, I, maybe everybody's a good person. I don't want to be like saying, but you go to a good conservative place. I don't know. Seventy five percent of them have put their kids in the public school. So it's kind of I hate to make this analogy, but it, it's, you know, when 55 or 60 million Americans have had an abortion, if you walk up to them and say abortion is murder, they have to go against what they did. There's a lot of healing that has to take place. You go up to parents. They think they bought a house in the right zip code. They put their kids in school. It's hard to make them believe that it's as bad as it is. Now, maybe covid, the pandemic silver lining is that they saw some of it. Maybe the CRT fight is, 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 is getting there. But I, I feel like it's harder than people realize. I, I've got a great friend who's a devout Christian and he's fighting, fighting, fighting in his school district and the school board. And I'm thinking when you're done that fight, they're going to outlast you. That's what they do. I mean, so how do you persuade on this? Well, excellent question, Ed. And what I've noticed in recent years is that we are winning the battle now. When when I started telling people six or eight years ago that they needed to pull their children out of government schools, I got a lot of funny looks. I got people saying, yeah, you know, that's nice if you're really rich, but we can't all do that. I got, you know, some people would even say, well, that's kind of fringe, right? 80% of Americans send their kids to government school. How can you suggest that we've done a, that we've made a mistake here? But I think that is coming to an end, and I think we really have won the debate here. Uh, Rush Limbaugh, multiple times before he passed away, number one talk show host in America, 18 million listeners a day, said multiple times in the last year of his life, parents, you've got to get your children out of the public schools. Franklin yeah. Graham, uh, one of the leading evangelical leaders in the world, has now come out and said, uh, in response to these LGBT mandates in government schools in New Jersey, parents, you've got to pull your kids out of public schools. So major Christian and conservative leaders are now sounding the alarm. President Trump, multiple times in his last year of office, said we have to protect our children from these indoctrination centers, from these failing government schools. He said that's why we have this mayhem in our streets. That's why our cities are burning. And he was correct. So the polling data shows the liberals have lost the argument. The advocates of government education have lost the argument. Even public school teachers know better than to send their kids to public school. In fact, they're more likely than everyday Americans to have their children enrolled in a public school or to have them out of a public school. So this is really encouraging. Now the the hard part is we're competing with free. Right. And when you're competing with free, it becomes very difficult. But once parents see the urgency, I'll tell you, the tide is turning. People are waking up and the older people whose children have already gotten out of the government schools, they come up to me after every talk and they say, Alex, I wish we had heard this 15 years ago, 20 years ago. We made a terrible mistake. We've lost our child. They're completely bonkers. So the tide is turning and I'm, I'm very excited about that. Well, again, we're talking with Alex Newman. And uh, again, I'll put up on uh, social media all of uh, Alex's uh, places to find him. LibertySentinel.org is one where he is the uh, CEO there. Um, 
Alex, I think it's turning. I think it's turning. I think the um, and the homeschooling has given people an opportunity like it's it's making, you know, people are realizing, OK, I can handle that. Uh, I can <laughs> in some ways I can see how badly they did in my public school. Uh, I'm going to do I can do just as bad at home. I mean, in teasing, but in terms of organization, all the rest, <laughs> it's made a difference. People see the possibilities. Uh, you know, I do think. Uh, so I'll tell you this. I, I, I talk about this all the time. There's an old timer friend of mine. He's in his 80s, I believe. He's a, he went to Princeton undergrad and then uh, Harvard Law School. And he's an old fashioned American educated man, just well read, deeply versed and thoughtful and a conservative, of course, and, and a Christian. And I asked him about this and he said, I, you know, I said, how does it turn? And he said, the problem is we've lost like three or four generations now to the school system. And then he went on a riff on higher education. Alex, we get put our kids through the system and then we send them to these higher education. I, I, I know my kids are now getting close to higher education. I can't even stand it. And, and again, the system, it's um, it's so uh, broken, but it's so culturally acceptable. Try saying to your friends, oh, I'm going to have my kid take a gap year. They think it's, you know, they think, oh, that's weird. You know, why? What's wrong with your kid? You got a disease? You know, is it something wrong? You know, and and yet we've got to try to change the paradigm. That's what I wonder about is that as much as I love Trump, he changed the paradigm of like fighting back in politics, but he didn't change the paradigm of higher education. He didn't change that. Yeah, and, and this is another one of those systemic problems where I don't know that there is going to be any kind of simple solution, any kind of change. One of the problems is that the people who run this system are completely indoctrinated to believe this. And, and as you pointed out earlier, you can't just go up to somebody who's dedicated their life to something and explain to them that they've been all wrong without encountering some serious resistance. But I think we are seeing a paradigm shift when it comes to education. I, I actually am a teacher. It's one of many things I do. I teach for a private Christian school called Freedom Project Academy. And I get tons of parents saying, Alex, we're so worried about the university. What do we do? What schools can you recommend? We need to find a Christian school that's not going to brainwash our kids. And we have, uh, I mean, the, the American people are waking up to this. And I, I actually, people think this is really incendiary when I say this, but I'm actually glad for critical race theory because it has caused this firestorm, this incredible awakening among Americans. And right now, unfortunately, they're they're wasting a lot of that energy by screaming at their school board members and things like that. But that's good, too, because it's causing others to wake up. And so what needs to happen now is all that anger, all that momentum that's being built up needs to be channeled into something constructive. We do have decent universities. We do have decent institutions of higher learning in this country. Hillsdale is a very good example. New St. Andrews up in Idaho, another good example. Uh, there's a handful of really, really good schools, Patrick Henry College, that, mm-hmm. uh, that are doing a great job. They're seeing a lot of growth. They're not entangled with government. They don't take federal money, so they don't have to succumb to these crazy mandates. And uh, there is a remnant that it's growing and it's going to keep growing. Uh, we're talking again with Alex Newman. And one of my favorite things to talk about is Crimes of the Educators, his book uh, that he wrote with the late Samuel Blumenfeld, um, How Utopians are, are Using Government Schools to Destroy America's Children. Extraordinary book. And as I always tell Alex, even if I thought it was extraordinary, which would be nice enough, the late Phyllis Schlafly, who knew something about books and something about writing, used to say it's one of the most important books on education. She just she thought it was so valuable. So, Alex, this is what I ask you. You mentioned systemic racism. I only quibble with our conversation here. And again, we're talking with Alex Newman, and I'll put up all, on social media all the places you can find his stuff. But one place, LibertySentinel.org, where he is the CEO and the writings are there and things to do, check out what he's doing and follow into it. But in, in your book, Crimes of the Educators, the only thing quibble I'd have with our conversation, I think there is one one real systemic racist entity, you know, uh, organization, and that is the school teachers unions, because they have a system that is trapping 
mostly black and brown kids in the worst schools in this country. And 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 the idea that we have a president who is I mean, literally says he literally says, I'll do whatever the teachers union wants. That's what he says to them, because my wife is a teachers union. Those people, people should revile. Americans should revile few. You know, I don't want to revile our fellow citizens. The the teachers unions. These are these are it's despicable institutions. You're absolutely right about that. And, and, you know, another place where we see this horrific entrenched racism is in the abortion industry uh, and in the Democrat Party, frankly. I mean, what what kind of political party dehumanizes an entire category of people based on their skin color by suggesting that they're too stupid to go get an ID to vote? while at the same time, saying that we all need to carry our medical papers around to be able to exist in society. Uh, This is the kind of dehumanizing racism that really permeates the Democrat Party. But I don't believe this is shared by mainstream America. Uh, we do see it clearly in the abortion numbers. Right? There are more black children, uh, more black babies in New York who are murdered than are born as a result of the systemic racism that comes right down from Margaret Sanger, runs right through Planned Parenthood, the tax-funded abortion behemoth. Uh, and that is very firmly embedded in the Democrat Party. But when it comes to American society at large, mainstream Americans, um, normal Americans clearly reject those bigoted views. And I I think the tide is turning on this as well. All the Democrat screaming and the fake media is not going to change the fact that Americans don't approve of this. All right, Alex, tell our listeners where they can find you or find more your preferred path to get more from you or get on your emails or whatever you think to tell our folks. Well, thank you so much, Ed. My personal website, like you said, is libertysentinel.org. I'm also the senior editor at the New American Magazine. I'm a regular contributor to the Epic Times. I'm the uh, executive director of Public School Exit. You can find us at publicschoolexit.com. And I do a lot of other things, but that's uh, that's a long enough list now. So thank you for having me, Ed. I really appreciate it. You're great. Thanks, Alex Newman, everybody. And uh, he's superb. And and get get clued in and follow stuff and get his book. All right, we'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Mrs. Schlafly was a courageous and articulate voice for traditional values and common sense for more than 70 years. Now, continuing that legacy, the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Optics is not just a part of politics. Optics is politics. The notorious leftist organizer Saul Alinsky infamously said, Power is not only what you have but what the enemy thinks you have. This Alinsky quote speaks to a fundamental truth that every savvy activist should know. If others perceive you as being the only conservative around, your activism will not have anywhere near the impact that it otherwise would. Sadly, many people are unwilling to take a stand on an issue if they feel it would put them on the losing side of history, even if the standard is right. The abortionists at Planned Parenthood know this political rule all too well. If you look at the news and see the women's march and loud feminists clamoring for abortion rights, you'd think that the pro-life position is not winning in America. If you listen to the lobbyists from Planned Parenthood who spend millions of your taxpayer dollars convincing you to give them more taxpayer dollars, you'd think we're losing ground. In reality, this could not be further from the truth. Planned Parenthood operates more than 50% of all abortion mills in the United States but they close location after location. Since 1995, Planned Parenthood has gone from 938 facilities to just 590. That's a total decrease of more than a third of their facilities in just one generation. Yet you won't hear these numbers by watching the evening news. This is a textbook case of Alinsky-style political optics. 
Remember, power is not only what you have, but what the enemy thinks you have. Leftists use this rule all the time, and conservatives should know about it too. Letting the world know that our generation is a pro-life generation can make all the difference as we fight for the unborn. We cannot allow ourselves to be marginalized by Planned Parenthood and other abortion bullies. Conservatives are the ones defending the sacredness of innocent human life, and America stands with us. We have the power of optics if only we're willing to seize it. Never let the liberals tell you otherwise. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Despite the outrageous pro-abortion stance of many liberals, the vast majority of American people value human life. More than ever, pro-life voices need to stay vigilant and be heard. At phyllisschlafly.com, we're not backing down. Please, join us in the battle for life at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Hey, I want to finish up real quick. I've only got a few minutes. I want to uh, tell you a quick story. You know, our Pro-America Report listeners are all across the country. A lot of folks listen on the podcast. They stream it live from The Answer San Diego. Some show, Some people go to the Pro-America Report, go to ProAmericaReport.com and pick up the uh, the standalone links and listen to them. So I get uh, texting and e- I get texting and emailing with some folks all over the country. And, and one is in the center of America. I won't tell you the town, but a, a, a Midwestern town, uh, mid-sized city, a mid-sized city, I'd say. And um, this uh, friend of mine works in the hotel industry. And so she was describing to me that in the last few months, there has been an uptick of people who come into the hotel, check in, smoke marijuana, use the pool, and leave the next day. And my friend's description of this is that it's people that don't look like they are necessarily hotel clientele. They're not moving in and out of town. They don't even come in with, um, uh, you know, baggage. They just want the pool. It's hot. They want to smoke weed somewhere. And they've got a little bit of money. And my friend's contention is this is based on the fact that they're getting money sent to them by the federal government. They're not working. And it's kind of a fun thing to do. It's a kind of uh, tourism. And the hotel, which is not particularly uh, enjoying the fact that people come lounge around the pool, smoke weed, and don't necessarily uh, give a good impression or anything else, has actually... has actually increased prices on rooms to see if they can sort of deter some of this behavior. But think about that. Think, As we always say, think about the incentives. Think about the incentives for people depending on what you do for them, right? If, if somebody has to work for something, they change, their behavior is different than if they're given it. It's the old example. You know, the one that was always stuck in my head was Congressman Jack Kemp, who was... Um, he ran for vice president, I guess. He was on the ticket with uh, Bob Dole, right? It was Dole Kemp. And uh, and I remember one thing about Kemp as a congressman. He was an old football player. He played for the Buffalo Bills. And, and he used to... Um talk a lot about the idea of home ownership. Now, we can look back and we can have a conversation about how some of the federal uh, government's uh, subsidies and some of the way they handle law around home ownership was not good and not helpful, but that's a different time because it got corrupted, uh, got corrupt, especially corrupt in the last, say, 20 years. But back when he first started talking about it, his point was, if you make everybody live in, in, in Section 8 housing or live in, in housing that's not theirs, they don't relate to it the same way as when it's theirs. That when they own something, they take care of it differently. They they uh, you know improve it differently. They have a different relationship to it 
than um, than ever. And the history of America has lots of sort of examples of that. You know, the in the, in the period of time where there was um, homesteaders and you get a piece of land way out and you go out there and it was yours, right? So um, anyway, it's uh, an interesting side effect of giving away money with no attachments. People's behavior turns out to be not necessarily as good as you'd like or maybe as productive or not productive is the wrong word, but as helpful. So interesting story. Thank you for that from one of our listeners. And you can reach me through the website, ProAmericaReport.com. Directly, you can email me, ed at phyllisschlafly.com, or you can text me, 314-256-1776. Hey, we'll be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on a ProAmerica Report. Thank you to Noah, our great producer, and Joanna for booking our guests. They hold it all together. I'll talk to you tomorrow. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego.